One of the things I think is interesting about being an ally, sometimes people think that they have read all that there is to read or they have learned all that they need to learn. Right. And if you go to like Racism 101 or Allyship 101 and you sit there thinking you're not going to learn anything, that's the wrong thing. Somebody's always going to teach you something. Hey, I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashi Venu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Rabbi Sandra Lawson. Hi, Sandra. How are you? I'm good, Deborah. It's good to be here, as always, and I love our conversations. For me, too. And that's our focus today. We did not invite a guest on because in conversations we've been having about our shared work over the last couple of weeks, we realized that it would be really rich to have a conversation on what it means to be an ally, a good ally, a powerful ally. And um, so that's what Sandra and I are going to, uh, I'm going to learn from her today. And I hope you will all learn as well. And we're also going to learn from Deborah too, because we're going to um, hopefully have a rich conversation. And before I talk, tackle any kind of hard conversation or before I do any kind of talk, I really want to center us in gratitude. And the best blessing of gratitude is that, that I know of, regardless of time of day, is something from our morning liturgy, uh, Moda Ani. Moda Ani Lefanecha Ruachai Vechayam, Shazarta Bi Nishmati Bechem Lacha Raba Emunatecha. And I'm going to take some liberties in translating, and I'll translate it like this Thank you, the divine source of all, for restoring my soul, breathing life into me, giving me another day, allowing us to be together. And you, the divine source, are awesome. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. I actually did a whole special podcast episode on 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 just just with me on my interpretation of that. I love that oh, you started wow. with that. Yeah. So before we dive into actual conversation, um, we agreed that it might be helpful for folks to have like a definition of allyship, even as we want it to be a jumping off point rather than an ending or a rigid and fixed thing. And uh, I'm turning to a resource called Chaver Up, 49 Rabbis Explore What It Means to Be an Ally Through a Modern Jewish Lens. And this is a book that came out last year that was published by Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, which is the world's largest LGBT synagogue. It's not limited to LGBT allyship uh, at all, and it's a really rich collection, and I was really honored to be asked to contribute to it. And they start off right away, the editors, uh, Rabbis Sharon Kleinbaum and Mike Moskowitz, with a definition about allyship. So I'm going to share that um, just so we have it as a shared starting point. Ally, as a noun, has evolved in meaning from a person or state who helps another to a more pointed kind of social and political advocacy. As David M. Hall writes in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it is now often used to describe, and here I'm quoting, a person who is not a member of a marginalized or mistreated group, but who expresses or gives support to that group. That's the end of that quote. And they go on to say, currently we understand an ally to be someone in a position of privilege who chooses to act on behalf of others who are more at risk. What do you think, Sandra, of that definition? I think the definition is great. And I do think it's very important to have a framing of a definition. But I also want to say that definitions are living. And um, often sometimes when we talk about um, allyship, 
or we talk about any of the, the challenges in our society, whether it be racism, homophobia, transphobia, and I can go on and on and on, people rely too heavily on definitions as a default. So, you know, sort of see the definition as, uh, you know, as a living definition and may it help frame for you all uh, the definition of, of allyship, but it's not like a, it's not a closed, a closed definition. I think that's right. And I think about something that you and I both, I know we teach a lot and one of, it's mm-hmm. one of our shared points and it's, it comes from breadth and depth of Jewish mm-hmm. teaching is about relationship, um, you know, centering relationship at every, in everything we do. And I think that um, that's really helpful mm-hmm. when we think about like how to use definitions. Like if it's just on the page, that's one thing, but it comes to life in our relationships with other people, whether it's individuals or groups mm-hmm. of people. Yes. So. I want to ask you, I mean, this is something I think a lot about, which is like, what do you think it means to be a good and powerful and effective ally? I mean, maybe we can lose those adjectives. What does it mean to be an ally? Or maybe they're presumed in it. But what I want to talk about, and what feels like it's continual learning for me is like, how to make certain this isn't just a label, but it's actually an action. It's something that's really brought to life. For those who can't see me, I'm kind of smiling because the definition of what it means to be an ally, you know, at least for me, changes day to day. It really depends on the what's depends on the day, depends on what I'm going through, um, it depends on where I am, depends on who I'm talking to, depends depending on the power dynamic. I mean, there's just a lot. Um, and I'm pausing because I've had really good examples of allyship. Uh, in my life and and people who have been good allies when they have stepped in have also checked in with me to see if they may have overstepped in those good experiences that the ally was doing what I felt like needed to be done, something that I could not do for myself. Um, And some of the bad experiences um, I've had to tell people to not speak over me or to not speak for me. And my silence doesn't mean that I, I don't know things. Um, and sometimes those conversations are hard. And also sometimes that means I don't have the conversations with people because I don't want to invest the energy to try to help people change. And that could be because of relationship. If I'm invested in a relationship with someone um, and, and, I want that relationship to continue to thrive. I will do that, that extra step. But if I'm not invested, um, then I won't. And that's not to be mean. It just means that there's just a lot of energy um, in, into this work. Sure, sure. Part of it, I think, is to, like what I take away from what you said, is mm-hmm. to try to follow your lead. There, I mean, I think there are times, for sure, when the, the, the ally's job is to be out in front. Um, and to take the hits or to open doors, like whatever the language is. And, but, but that's a negotiated Mm -hmm. uh, place. And, and a lot of times what it means to be an ally is like either like to open that door, ideally, Mm -hmm. if it's not so combative and then get out of the way. And, and it's, I mean, it's really easy to miss. Like I'm thinking about right after you started working with Reconstructing Judaism, Sandra, and we had a board meeting and we were talking about this, a major project we've been working on for a year of, of, of articulating our racial justice commitments. And you were, you'd been really involved as a volunteer with us in a lot of different ways, including on our strategic planning committee, but you hadn't actually been involved in that particular project, even as you were coming on staff. And so I, you were at the meeting and I like, and I didn't invite you to talk. 
And yet, even as you had just started, you had a lot to say and you were going to be, you are really involved in bringing them to life. And then afterwards, I was like, I had been doing all of the talking and another white person had been doing a lot of the talking. And I was like, so I missed it in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I sent a chat to the board chair and said, I blew this. I need to do chuva and I want to do it publicly. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, so I said, look, I didn't like Sandra, I, I intentionally silenced Sandra and now I want to make space for her to speak. Like, so it's like, it's, you know, it it can happen Mm -hmm. even with the best of intentions, I think. And I was really without, it, it didn't cost me anything to, um, then rectify it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I have a different memory. <laughs> Thank you for that. I did not experience it at that meeting that way, um, but I'm glad that you shared that information with me. Is, is my version was that inaccurate? Like, like does it? No, I just said no, no, no. Your your version was fine. I just think that I just that I often when I step into spaces the first time, I'm really just sort of this sort of observer, really just trying to take in a lot of information. Right. Um, so I did not experience that as being silenced, but and 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 listening to you, and um, I can see where that would come in, and also the benefit of having me speak. But I did not see it as being silenced. I think that part part of the challenge of racism, anyway, is that people are always questioning as we do this work. White people start to think about race in a much broader way questioning how they behave with black black and brown people and also re- recognizing the amount of space that they take up even if the black and brown person isn't fe- hearing it that way and also like as a student at RRC there were times that some of the white men and some of the white women took up a ton of space and i just i was like i don't i don't i don't like this they're taking up too much space but i also don't want to waste the energy cuz i want to get out of this class so i just you know i think these were <laughs> choices that people are making. Right, right. Um, but also that what you what you just said though is part of the reflective work that right. needs to be done. So I'm gonna get, I'll give you, I'll give an example of this similar to this. Uh, as a student at RRC, I think it was year two, I knew that I had to be in a relationship with my classmates for the next however long. And um, because I was I needed to be in a relationship with them with them, that means I had to have hard conversations with them. And I was very strategic about it. So one classmate in particular, um, there was an incident that happened um, and I made a lunch date with them. I said, you know, it was clear that I needed to talk about something serious. And so we met for lunch and then I took a lot of emotional energy because I knew I I wanted to be, I was going to be in a relationship with this person and I didn't want to have the next four years just completely derailed from this incident. And I I said to this person, and one of the reasons I'm having this conversation with you is because we are are in relationship together. We are going to continue to be in relationship together long after this program. And the things that you said, even though I know that you did not intend them this way, landed on me this way. And, and I also knew that the, the person had framed this incident to try to avoid <laughs> the racism. And I said, that's the dance that we do. That's what racism does to us. You know, and even though this person's best intentions was to not tokenize me and not be racist, that was the actual intent uh, because of how racism plays out in our society. Yeah, that was the actual impact. Yeah. Yeah. So like, okay, so one thing is like, follow the lead and some like mm-hmm. the, the other person and sometimes, and that's going to look different. What the following the lead means sometimes being out in front and sometimes being alongside and sometimes being behind. 
uh, and just about how much to talk. And this, I think, is like true, not just across racial justice. My wife, Christina, has this who, you know, has, is a master pedagogue and a master educator. She has this calculation of do the math in the room. And if there are 10 people in the room, plan to talk one tenth of the time. And if you're talking more, maybe rein it in. And if you're talking less, try to find the courage to step up. And that and that's one of the things I think that makes a lot of space for all kinds of people and makes certain that no one person dominates. And the takeaway there, again, is read the room, read the room, <laughs> read the people, what's going on. But I think um, another lesson is, like another takeaway is um, approach this as certainly about relationship the way you just did. And then also like with a lot of humility and as much as possible with a lot of curiosity, like that because you, you think you're doing one thing, mm. don't you want to know that you're doing it wrong? Rather, like, don't you want to try to, like, even if you, like, even if I feel really, really defensive, hopefully that's a, an initial reaction it's a, and it's a temporary reaction and I can take in what you're actually saying. And then the next time, maybe make a different set of choices that don't have mm-hmm. the impact that you were just talking about. Yeah. I was just, when, uh, when you talked about Christina, um, the only teacher at the, at the time that I had at RC that, that I think made a real effort to try to spread the amount of space that took, people took up was Rabbi Vivi Mayer, because this is a wonderful example. Um, and it wasn't perfect, but Vivi <laughs> handed out um, paper clips in our class. Um, and you only had so many paper clips. <laughs> yep, right. I don't know if I made this part up. People may have been bartering. I don't know. But, maybe. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, then, and if you ran out of paper clips, every time you spoke, you had to give, give a paper clip. Right. Not perfect, but I think like, instead of saying, please don't take up space, this is like a way to make our class think differently about the things that we said and trying to create more space for people. Um, and uh, just going back, to allyship, something I said before we started talking, I think for people, for white people who are invested in this work, and this is hard work. So if you think this is easy work, then you're in the wrong place Um, because you're talking about dismantling, you know, a whole system and centuries of, of a system designed to treat one group of people over another group of people, in this case, black and brown people. And to stand up for black and brown people, to, uh, to be an ally doesn't really cost you anything as a white person. And I, and I, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say it that way because I know people may have, may lose family members, whatever, or may, may lose friends. Um, but in our society, it doesn't get you killed. It doesn't cause, cause harm to you. So black and brown people that do this work, they do, they have to do this. Uh, not only to try to change a system, but as a point of survival. And I think that often gets lost in uh, with with people who are trying to be good allies. And uh, and also sometimes like there is, you know, like I spent, as you all know, I spent a lot of time on social media um, and almost almost daily there is an ally that says something wrong um, or thrives off of the attention that they get because they are an ally, but when they forget their place, meaning they forget that they're an ally and this is not a bully pulpit for them, um, they say something and um, often default into defensiveness um, 
instead of listening to the criticism that they are receiving, black and brown people know that white people are going to mess up on this. We know it. It's so when, when white people do, it's not like, oh, you know, for us, it's like, okay, that you can learn. Mm-hmm. At least I think, you know, That's I right. think that way you can learn. Right. Um, but sometimes for white people, it's almost as if, like I've said before, like this is the worst, you know, to, to, to frame anything that sounds like I'm a racist is like the worst possible thing. And many opportunities are missed to learn and to grow. Right. I shared with you earlier, one of my, the most powerful essays I read was an op-ed piece in the New York Times by Maeve Higgins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, she wrote it in June of 2020, not that long after George Floyd was murdered. And um, it's, it, it's titled Two White People Who Want to Be One of the Good Ones. And there are a couple of things that I think are so powerful. But one of the things she said is like, if you, if you are just completely concerned about how, how, to, how to be the best possible ally and that that's your huge preoccupation and if you mess up, it's really devastating, then you're making this about you. Mm-hmm. as opposed to actually about the work that you're trying to do. Like, I think that I think about ally, my definition of allyship or my interpretation of allyship is that it's both an act of imagination, like to imagine a, a future that doesn't yet exist and an act of empathy to like, yeah. you know, realize the deep connection, the deep sameness of, the, of this person who has less privilege, who has less, 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 uh, you know, uh, access and, um, and, like that, not make it about me, but really mm-hmm. to keep centering what this is ultimately about. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we work so closely together is so that I can use my position mm-hmm. and, and my, my power, such as it is, to be a good ally and both to model it and if necessary to act on it. So um, I know it's a changing it's a changing definition, but, and it's, it's, and it's so much of it is contextual and so much of it is relational, but are there other things that you would urge me and others to, to pay attention to, to know? I think for many, for many white people, for many Jews who benefit from white privilege, what they did yesterday or a year from now, a year earlier or 10 years is not necessarily going to help them today. You know, so like the, for many in the Jewish community that continue to uh, lift up Heschel, I'm a Rabbi Joshua Heschel fan. I get it. Also Dr. King fan. I get it. Um, but that was when it was 1960 something, um, you know, or if you, you know, if you're talking to, a, you know, a bunch of black and brown people about what you did in another community, that doesn't have relevance for where you are in this moment. And so, um that means white people are going to continue to have to show up and continue to have to prove that they are an ally, especially when they're with a new group of people. And I'm one of the examples, this is one of the funnier ones. Uh, I did a talk before I started working for reconstructing Judaism and um, the woman who invited me to talk to this group said to me afterwards that she learned from my talk that she didn't understand why black people didn't show up for Jews um, because she was showing up for black lives matter and that she was supporting black lives matter, but she was frustrated. Black people weren't reciprocating. And then she realized how would a black person know what I was doing as a white person was doing. And I was just like, interest, like, 
And I'm not trying to make fun of this person, but like that was a wake up call for her to recognize that whatever she was doing, which was supportive of black people, you know, doesn't mean all black people can see it. Right. Right. And that, you know, like the, the, the wound is so great. Mm -hmm. This is a long-term project. I mean, God willing that that some of the changes happen sooner rather than later, but this is like it, 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 like the local stuff that you you all often teach, like get proximate, get close mm-hmm. to people, learn mm-hmm. about their experiences. That's really, really good. And uh, it's only it only transfers a little, yeah. um, you know, like it, it certainly transfers that you have the lived experience and the relationship and the but but it's, you, you got to start over again in the next place as well. And also, like, if you're a white person and you have brown children, if you're a white person, you're married to a brown person, um, it doesn't make you more, it, it puts you in close proximity, but you can still have be racist or you can still say racist things. Um, th- you know, there was a, this father who wrote this op-ed piece about he has a black son um, and realized how racist he was when it came to other black and brown people. Um, and and the, the, that logic is also the same is almost as if you can't say you're saying men can't be sexist because they're married to women like that. That's, you know, and so what, that's another thing that happens in allyship is people will try to prove their street cred by showing like I have black and brown children or I have a black and brown husband or wife or whatever, um, but not necessarily not willing to do the work to uh, the, the anti-racist work that needs to be done. Right, that it gets very, very, um, the relationships are the only thing rather right. than the, the larger social analysis or, or, or you know, or, or the internalized racism. I'm thinking about a conversation that you and I have had many, many, many times, including when you were in school. I mean, I think another thing about what it means to be a good ally is to, that to give you control over your story rather than indulge in my curiosity about your story. I mean, there's still stuff, you and I have known each other 13, 14 years, and there's still stuff about your journey I don't know. And I feel like, you know, either it'll come up or it won't. And I think this is true. I think this is probably a good practice. This is a good practice, again, across across Mm -hmm. relationships. But whatever I might be curious about doesn't mean that that question needs to be asked and doesn't mean that you need to answer that question. Yeah. And I also, I, I agree. And I also want to say, Deborah, because we have been friends for a long time. If you asked me a question about my personal life, I wouldn't be offended by it because we have been, right. we've had multiple converse, conversations and hangouts and, and things that people do when they work together and they're friends, uh, you know, and, um, but also I want to say, since you, you mentioned that, like, you know, the, the curiosity around like Jews of color in our, in our, in our uh, Jewish world, um, you know, when white people feel entitled to ask me about my Jewish journey, I have black and brown friends who are Jewish. and I have no idea how they became Jewish. I'm not even curious about it. I just know they're Jewish and that is enough for me. Right. Um, and, and I don't understand the need to know more than that. I mean, I can intellectualize and, and figure that out, but I, you know, most of the black and brown Jews in my life, I have no idea how they came to Judaism unless they told me or I read it in an essay or something. I think one of the things that's really hard is that sometimes there are folks who think that it's they, they're, they, whether or not they realize they're doing it, they're playing a gatekeeper role. Like, mm-hmm. are you really Jewish and prove it to me? And I like, you know, Christina, who is like a blonde haired or was a blonde haired um, person who chose to keep her birth name mm-hmm. is frequently like, you know, she's got a great story of how she came to Judaism, but people will, will, um, 
try to keep her out or in or try to, or, or they just get anxious about what she doesn't know. I do, I've seen it also happen. I mean, I, I, I can think about an occasion where like someone came to you after, you know, like you were in rabbinical school, nobody questioned your Jewishness in, in that particular setting. But I watched someone come up to you and like with so much enthusiasm, like, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was still intrusive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So to rein in the curiosity and again, let the relationship take the center. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, and as you develop a relationship, then there's more space, but, but not yeah. at, not at first meeting. Or second, but yeah, I mean, those, no, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just astonishing to me that, you know, that people can say incredibly rude things to me that are, that are, that that are racist or have show racial bias. And at the same time can also be overly excited about my Jewishness. And there's also racism. So I'll, I'll just share another story. I was just telling, I was telling Susan this the other day, yesterday, um, when, when I converted, my synagogue had this welcoming thing like you know and it was up to us like the rabbi was like you know if you want to you know if we want to celebrate you but if you don't want to do that that's fine so so i could so this guy myself and craig now craig was a tall white guy with dark hair and we had converted in this you know with with this community the same week and you know we had been to the classes together but at the serum at this like i shouldn't call it a ceremony but like this party or whatever uh this woman came up to me and she said now, Craig is standing right next to me, and she was at the service where we were both like blessed and honored. And she was so excited that I, as a black woman, did not convert to Islam. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and that I was not a Muslim. Uh, and my friend Craig, his eyes were just like, and she would not let it go. She had to like, she put her hand on, on me, sort of on me, not, you know, like sort of like, hold on, don't go anywhere. Calling her friends over. Oh, wow. Okay. To say, look what we got. I mean, that's, I don't know the words she said, but how they landed were like, look what we got. We got one. And she's not going. And I was just like, this was like, not, not day one of my Jewish life, but yeah. like, and also like I'd been in this community for a while now, like almost maybe more than a year, more like two years at this point. And I don't even remember what Craig and I talked about, but I know we both could not help and get away. But but also the point of the story, other than her avert, avert racism, completely ignoring this other man's story and not seeing as, it as valid or as exciting mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and not being interested in it because he looks yeah. the part. Yeah. yeah. So a little bit of a fetishization. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, so imagine, so Craig's on one side of you. And if I were standing on the other side of you, I'm one of those people who like, I don't have, like, I don't always know what sometimes I do. Every once in a while, I know exactly what to do in a certain situation. Um, but a lot of times I don't, or like afterwards, you know, like I'll be like, oh, I should have said this, or I should have done that. Like, do you have a sense of like what the disruptive thing, like, cause, cause me standing there saying like, oh my God, that is so racist and inappropriate. It might, it might've stopped it, but I'm not certain it would have, you know, shame is, is never a good learning strategy. Like, do you have a sense and you might, and, and I, I'm not certain what it is other than maybe like, just to be like, if, if I had been like, I'm really not comfortable with how you're saying that, you know? The, the sad thing is, is that I, I don't, I don't, there, there was no one that interrupted this. I felt like, and, and it could have been other people. And of course, when I told the rabbi about it, about it later, he, he was also kind of shocked, but you know, but he was busy doing what rabbis do in communities. And I think that in that moment, I mean, I know other people had to hear it, but I also think that there was probably other people who shared that sentiment, you know, mm-hmm. and probably didn't see it as a bad thing or didn't know what to do. I didn't want to shame people. And I didn't know a lot then. I mean, I knew things, but I know more now. 
And I've had other, I've had people disrupt things like a graduate, graduate of our institution. Um, we uh, graduated long before I did, uh, one of our, our few canters. Um, and we went to a Pesach service, a Passover service. And um, uh, she, she knew the rabbi. They asked if she would, she came up, they came up to her at the beginning, like, would you sing this prayer? And she did, it was beautiful. I was just like, oh, you know, this is like before I went to rabbinical school. And when, when she was done singing in the service, over, people wanted to go up and meet her. And I was just standing there. They're like, that's great. They wanted to meet her. And this woman comes over to me and just like makes a, a, by, a byline, to, comes just straight to me and starts asking me a whole bunch of inappropriate questions about when I converted. I didn't even know who she was. She didn't introduce herself. Mm-hmm. And the graduate of RRC <laughs> sees this going on. And this was like one of the funniest disruptors I've ever seen. Comes over to this. She's like, no. Sandra's my sister. Like, Great. <laughs> that's my sister. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, way, the women didn't know what to do with that. And then she right. dragged me on. And then, if, and if, as good friends do, she checked in with me and right. said, Was that okay? And I was just like, Thank you for getting me out of that mess. I am proudest when it's like playful. And I had, there have been moments when I've just been able to, like, I was um, buying a ticket. Uh, a train ticket at the Trenton train station uh, at the automatic machine. And there was a, 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 a woman standing next to me and I don't think I need to talk about race here. Like, you know, like I, this is, this was much more about gender and she was, she was a gorgeous woman. And there was a man on her other side who was just all over her, like just hitting, did not know her, thought she was beautiful, thought she was an object and was like hitting on her. Mm-hmm nonstop. And I, like, when I finished with my ticket, I just turned her and I was like, so are we ready to go get the train now? And like offered her my arm literally. And she's like, mm-hmm. yes, I'm ready to go. And, you know, he didn't know what, to, like he did, he thought she was yeah. alone and therefore she was vulnerable. And I was like, just able to like, and he mm-hmm, left mm-hmm. and I just looked at her and said, I don't know where you're going, but I was, there was no way in hell I was leaving yeah. until I knew you were okay. And I was That's just right. so proud of myself that there was a way, like, we didn't have to confront mm-hmm. him. We just, we just altered the trajectory. But I think that's the thing is like, I think for allies, like to be brave mm-hmm. when, when the moment is, and, but then, then, but then it makes certain, you know, like overstep and then to be paternalistic, but chances are, if it feels icky, there's some role for, but, but for also us. there's, there's some really good training out there. Um, and the only one I can think of right now um, is a training that the, the anti-defamation league used to do, and they probably still do and their schools program was, you know, it's, it's about how to disrupt and how to do what you just said, basically, so that you're both not put in danger. Um, and I also think that, like, I, I, I mean, I think sometimes people just feel people feel like they don't know what to do. So they do nothing. Right. And that's, um, you know, there have been times in my life um, where I feel like I could have stepped in in some way and I chose not to. And I will have to live with those choices. You know, I think that the, the, what is I don't, that saying? Like, if you see something, say something. Say something uh, but, but there's so much work, and there's so much to learn, especially when people don't understand the cultural differences or just don't understand each other. Um, and 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 to to be invested in it and, and and being an ally that means do that means doing the work, and that means re, you know reading stuff. Like, um, one of the things I think is interesting about being an ally. Sometimes people think 
they not saying that people think they know everything, but sometimes people think that they have read all that there is to read, or they have learned all that they need to learn. Right. And um, that's a, mis- a mistake. And I was uh, given a tour of, uh, I, was in, I was in Indianapolis a few weeks ago, and I went to Madam C.J. Walker's uh, theater. And I do know, I, I, I love Madam C.J. Walker, um, would never proclaim to know everything about her, but the host is used to, was used to talking to people who didn't know anything about mm-hmm. Madam C.J. Walker. So you should tell want... people like, like, like um, cosmetics, Right. Empress. <laughs> and I said, I'm a, I'm, I'm a black woman from a particular generation. I know exactly who Madam C.J. Madam C. Walker was. Um, and she's like, okay, well, I said, no, but I'm always, I always want to learn more. This is your, this is your theater. And I, I know you're going to tell me something I don't know. And she did. Um, and I think sometimes that uh, you, you have to, you have to continue to be curious. You have to continue to want to learn and, and, to not assume, even, even in the most basic, if you go to like racism 101 or allyship 101 and you sit there thinking you're not going to learn anything, that's the wrong thing. Somebody's always going to teach you something. And so to be humble and be curious, um, you know, and, and, and be open to learning instead of thinking that I can't learn anything from this person. Cause I get, I, that's something I get a lot, you know, is there like a, we've already done one-on-one is like a 2.0, um, you know, and I don't know where people are. And, uh, and, you know, as people move through this, yes, they can learn things, but they can always learn by stepping back. Even if it feels like you're going back to the beginning, there's always something to learn. I think that's so, that's probably a great place for us to wind down. But I think that that's exactly right. That I think a stance of humility and curiosity, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's what this moment requires, you know, allyship and beyond. I mean, I think the people who are most certain are the people who I trust the least um, because there's so much shifting. Mm-hmm. And, and if we approach it, I think, with humility and curiosity, then maybe we can really be a part of the shift in a really constructive way, as opposed to just reaffirming what already yeah. is, like whether that's personal or whether that's social and structural. Is there like a piece of Jewish uh, wisdom that you might want to? I mean, I love that we started with gratitude. Um, is there? Is there? A, I I can offer, but I'm just wondering. Is we could both a, do one. I'm curious. Okay. I always love learning from you. The piece that I'm leaning on right now, you know, I think you know. I always tell people if you really want to learn a Hebrew phrase and really understand what it understand it. You have to love your neighbor, love your fellow, love your friend, love your you know neighbor as you love yourself. Um, and to to really embody that. It also means you have to love yourself, but that's another uh, thing. And that's another class for another day. The other thing is that we often throw around the phrase, you know, Batelam Elohim, created in, in the divine image. And I, I, and as someone who used to work with college students, I think that that is a, 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 a phrase that, that many people know, but don't really take it to heart. And if we remember that we're, we're all created in the divine image, we all have a spark of divine in us. And it also means that the divine has a spark from us as well. It is harder for us to hate each other. It is harder for us to dislike each other because that really means that we're all related. You can argue with your family. 
you can, you know, get disagreements with your family, but you're still family. And that's what I think. That's how I interpret Batella mm-hmm. Elohim, that we're all creating the divine image um, and, you know, love your neighbor. So beautiful. It's, I mean, yeah, I think taking both of them really seriously into heart, it's like, it's, it's demanding. It's not, they're not like throwaway lines. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to uh, go and I'm going to draw on the teaching that I contributed to the Haver Up book that I st- started on and um, draw like tell a rabbinic story about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. And um, he had this teaching. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai was um, one of the earliest rabbis who was very, very instrumental in creating the Mishnah um, and creating the, the origins of rabbinic Judaism as the second temple was destroyed. And there's the saying um, that he taught, if you have a sapling in your hand and someone tells you that the Messiah has arrived, first plant the sapling and then go out and welcome the Messiah. And I just, you know, I, I think about Yochanan, like to, to kind of pull out from that teaching to his life, he was the rabbi who was, he was in Jerusalem as, the, as Jerusalem was under siege, as the, as the temple was going to be destroyed. And he had himself um, smuggled out of the city in a coffin. Um, and then he went to the, um, to, the, to the general and convinced him to allow him to, to give him permission to build a new center of Jewish learning in the Galilee up north. And th- that's how he planted the seeds for rabbinic Judaism. And I just, that idea that like from like an extreme experience, maybe like, de- like the death of an old order, he was able to exercise this kind of imagination and invest in a future that he didn't actually live to see. Like he saw more of the destruction than the creation. Um, and that he was about not perpetuating what was, but about like embracing change, um, which might, sometimes it happens like incrementally and sometimes it happens quickly. Um, and that to like to zoom out from that whole experience, even in the messianic time, even when it's all going to get resolved, there's still going to be work to do. Like you still got to plant the tree. You still got to do the, 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 the work that is right in front of you, the day-to-day grunt work. And that it's all, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's this constant balance between like, what's the world we ultimately want and what's the work that that's right in front of us that we have to do with this human being, with this social situation that we're encountering. Um, and that we just have to be like, you know, we have to, to commit to it. We have to plant the sapling and then we have to go and try to bring about that messianic era ourselves. Sandra, this has been such a rich conversation. Thank you so much. I, I mean, we could keep talking for another hour. And it's like only just discipline, I think that's that's getting us to stop rather than, than lack of um, really important things to talk about. Um, for those of you who are listening, there are a lot of resources that you could turn to. Sandra and I both have several pieces on the bigreconstructingjudaism.org website. And you can either go through there or go on your own to the hashivenu.fireside.fm, where we'll post some of the resources that we were talking about earlier today. Um, and I want to raise up also uh, evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org, which is an amazing um, site that has a whole section on race and racism in the Jewish community that Sandra has contributed to and that we both use a lot. Um, and ritualwell.org also has some really wonderful resources to bolster us in our work about fighting racism and dismantling it. And then just as I'm saying that, I'm wondering if, Sandra, maybe, I, maybe we should uh, work on a, a, a blessing to foster uh, allyship. Like that, that, that would be a really great 
um, to, to bolster us and being, you know, the, those of us who need the, the bolstering to be upstanders and good allies. I, 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 I totally agree. I'm shaking my head and realizing that we're on a podcast, so I should say something. So I'm just nodding. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, there we go. Um, stand by. Maybe that will be forthcoming. Um, and I think the other the other thing I would do is to ask if you would please um, subscribe and rate and review us uh, in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman. And hi, I'm Rabbi Sandra Lawson. Uh, you've been listening to Hashivani Jewish Teachings on Resilience.